I'm Jim Benson, co-author with Scott Skelton of Rod Serling's Night Gallery and After Hours Tour. Starring tonight, Hattie Duke, Carl Reiner, Virginia Mayo, John Carradine, David Wayne, and Cesar Romero. Once again, Tom Wright's artistic inspiration was helped by a description of a tangible item, as we'll hear in the following clip. Again, the title sort of gave me a good boost. Then when you read the script and started putting elements together that you could use in a painting, it might be interesting because it had been kind of done a few hundred times. You know, the girl sitting there with her head down and her arms folded. You know, you go through a lot of images before you end up with the final one. I had this whole image of the torture that what a diary really brings about sometimes. This opening scene was filmed in the lobby of what was then the Universal Studios Black Tower, which was the executive office building of Universal Studios. Many Universal Studios productions utilize this building, which is now a Bank of America, located at 110 Universal City Plaza. Talent or lack thereof. And I am currently less than a fan of her nocturnal antics. Said antics of this... The Diary was filmed just before Patty Duke became Patty Duke Aston after she married John Aston, best known for playing Gomez Adams on the classic TV series, The Adams Family. At the time, Patty Duke was herself a target of the gossip columnists of the day who frequently reported on her public embarrassments and various antics, nocturnal or otherwise. Pickford and lesser lights like Miss Carrie Crane. So stop acting, Miss Crane, as if you were a pushy ingenue on the way up. Legendary actress Virginia Mayo was cast as Carrie Crane, the fading Hollywood star attempting to grapple with Holly Schaefer's vicious and incessant attacks on her career and on her character. Director William Hale recalled that working with Virginia Mayo was a case of art imitating life, as he described in the following clip. I don't remember too much, but I remember I used to, as a kid, I used to have a crush on Virginia Mayo, and all of a sudden, here, here I am working with her, and she arrives in, in a mink coat like an old-time Hollywood star, and she couldn't act worth shit. <laughs> I became disillusioned very quickly. Our Baby New Year was played by actor Felix Sela, best known for playing Cousin It on Patty Duke's future husband's TV series, The Addams Family. Virginia Mayo was an accomplished dancer and one of Hollywood's biggest stars, becoming Warner Brothers Studios' biggest box office draw in the late 1940s. A combination of sexiness and sass, Virginia Mayo starred in several classic films, including The Best Years of Our Lives, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, and the legendary White Heat, starring James Cagney. 
As Virginia Mayo's star began to fade in the late 1950s, she turned to starring in various television series, including Wagon Train, The Loretta Young Show, Doctari, Murder, She Wrote, Remington Steele, The Love Boat, and many, many more. Like many stars of the golden age of Hollywood, Virginia Mayo lamented the passing of the studio system, which was responsible, in part, for the decline in her popularity and career. As new Hollywood established a foothold, roles became fewer and fewer for the veteran actress. Virginia Mayo passed away in 2005 at the age of 84. Nothing quite so lethal, I regret to say. That a peace offering, perhaps, or a broad... Rod Serling's first draft for The Diary was originally written for Night Gallery's first season. Initially, the Schaefer character was a professional woman who purchased The Diary herself from a mysterious crone at a curio shop. She shares her fears about The Diary's predictions with a friend. After the Schaefer character dies in a manner predicted by the diary, her friend finds the curio shop to inquire about the purchase. The old crone professes not to remember the sale. In fact, the diary is still on display in the sales cabinet. Curious, the friend buys the diary, but when she flips to the first page, she finds an entry in her own handwriting. She drops it, shocked. When a passerby picks it up to return it to the distraught woman, she denies that it's hers and runs away screaming. No, as a matter of fact, she's not. If uh, either of you need a tunicate, I'll be outside. But according to NBC's Standards and Practices 1970 review, Serling's first season script draft came under scrutiny of NBC censors on June 23, 1970, resulting in production delays and the draft getting temporarily shelved, but not before the diary painting was created and displayed during the first season of Night Gallery. I bought it in an obscure little shop. They sell funny little things, curios, potions, talisman, all sorts of peculiar little items. I paid an enormous sum of money for it. When the network renewed Night Gallery for a second season, Serling returned to the idea and produced a revision that was stronger in dramatic thrust, switching the main character from a professional woman to a powerful Hollywood columnist. <laughs> While on the set of The Diary, Duke commented on Serling's and Night Gallery's thematic stock and trade, quote, the supernatural intrigues me. I read about it, but not late at night. I'm not a student of the occult or black magic, though. I think that's dangerous. New Year's Day, a bummer all the way around. Can't shake that miserable disquiet over Crane's suicide. Unlike some cast and crew on Night Gallery, William Hale had absolutely no problem with DP Lionel Linden on the set of The Diary, as we'll hear in the following clip. He worked more like the European system. He had a young uh, a camera operator, uh, I've forgotten the guy's name, but he was a French guy. And he let, and this guy was very creative, 
the way they are over in England, you know, where the operator works with the director and the, mm-hmm. and the cameraman just go, goes off and lights whatever the director and the operator decide to do. And he let this guy and me go off and line up the shots. And so I had a ball. I mean, we, you know, well, Curly wasn't any problem. I mean, he just, uh, you know, he just kind of sit in his chair and uh, kid around and let the operators go off and do our stuff. No, I never had any trouble with him. I, uh, Sometimes if guys come on like a prima donna or come like on like the director, you know, these old-time cameramen say, yeah, yeah, you got to convince me. <laughs> Jeb? Hey, go back to sleep. Only the milkmen are up and about. I can't. I couldn't. There was one person who Patty Duke particularly respected in the industry, and that was Rod Serling. Quote, Rod Serling was revered by all of us in the entertainment industry as a man who was so skillful at using his extraordinary intelligence. I met him once. He was very gracious, and of course, I gushed a little. Patty Duke was one of the entertainment industry's most honored and acclaimed actresses, the recipient of an Academy Award, two Golden Globe Awards, and three Emmy Awards. After her artistic triumph in The Miracle Worker, Patty Duke went on to television stardom, playing identical cousins Patty and Kathy Lane in her classic 1960s ABC TV series, The Patty Duke Show. Patty Duke resisted being typecast as an all-American teenager and in 1967 starred in the cult camp classic film Valley of the Dolls. An award-winning career followed with roles in such productions as Me, Natalie, My Sweet Charlie, George Washington, and Touched by an Angel. I guess you're right. There's my girl. We'll just leave it at that and forget it. Agreed? I'm gonna go put on some coffee. If your head is half as big as mine is, we're both red blanket cases. I never did like that broad anyway. She was a vindictive lush. You know what she called me? A direct quote, my dear. She said I was a malignant crossbreed between a vulture and a hotel dick. Now, she's dead anyway, so who cares? Holly. Yeah? You said only the first page was filled in, right? That's right. The second page is filled in, too. January 2nd. Didn't work last night. Should have gone to the desert or up to Arrowhead. But no sun in one and no snow in the other. So just stayed home. Top everything off, the phone was out of order. I didn't write that either. What's up? In the early 1970s, a wave of press speculation swelled as to Serling's potential real-life inspiration for the character of the hateful Holly Schaefer. Patty Duke downplayed the media chatter, quote, people are making a lot more out of it than it is. It's just a part. 
There's a certain thrill and power involved in being a gossip columnist. Most people are frightened by them, but I'm not. It's a nice departure for me. As an actress, those roles are always the most fun to play, doing things you can't get away with in real life. End of quote. Yes, ma'am. Oh, Miss Schaefer, I thought she was at the television studio. Say again? I figured you'd be at the studio by now, getting ready to tape your show. Oh, there's plenty of time yet. I've got at least an hour. I want this thing burned. Did you say burned? Burned. Incinerated, cremated. And finish up later, will you? much later, Miss Schaefer. I was hoping to get home a little early tonight. All right, then. Just, just leave it and do it tomorrow. <gasps> Miss Schaefer, are you all right? I busted it. I busted the telephone. Well, you've listened to my bizarre little tale. What's your professional assessment, doctor? Do I have the necessary requirements for a tour of duty on that couch over there? You make it sound like punishment, Miss Schaefer. Well, coming here wasn't my idea. It was Jeb's, Mr. Harlan's. Soft, gentle, friendly persuasion. Go get your head examined, lover. You, uh, you say there have been two notations predicting future events. At the time, the Oscar and Emmy-winning actress was suffering from the blur of fast times and bouts brought about by her undiagnosed bipolar disorder. Quote, It was during that time when I filmed Night Gallery that my mental illness was beginning to show its ugly head, recalled Duke. So getting that job was very helpful at keeping me focused and balanced, at least for that week. End of quote. Director William Hale remembered that Duke was indeed troubled at that time, as you'll hear in the following clip. I remember Patty being at a kind of a real low point in her life. I guess she's written about it since then, about being depressed and, and all that. And I used to go home, uh, go out the front gate, and she'd be sitting on the curb by the front gate with nowhere to go and nobody to take her home or anything. And I used to sort of pick her up and, you know, take her home. She was really at a low point in her life in those, you know, at that time. It can be, sometimes. In this case, I'm inclined to agree with you. The explanation is insufficient to our needs. That's wonderful, Doctor. 35 bucks an hour to find out something that I knew before I came... Cast as Dr. Mill was veteran actor David Wayne. Wayne had a varied and very successful career on stage, screen, and film appearing in such films as Adam's Rib, How to Marry a Millionaire, The Andromeda Strain, and TV series such as The Twilight Zone, Batman, where he played the Mad Hatter, and was a series regular in Ellery Queen and House Calls. Wayne also won two Tony Awards, starring in the Broadway productions of Finian's Rainbow and The Tea House of the August Moon. On February 9, 1995, Wayne died of lung cancer at the age of 81. With no recollection, however, of having done so. That's the weenie, hmm? 
My subconscious is the culprit. Thank you very much, Doctor. The next time I have a problem, I'll take it to Popular Mechanics. Your hour isn't up yet. That's okay. Keep the change. Um, you spoke earlier of the accusations Miss Crane leveled at you. Wouldn't you like to explore those? In walks Sigmund Freud. Did I hate my mother? Did I love my father? What's my position on women's lib? Look, I'll give you Holly Schaefer in one terse, cogent paragraph. I grew up in a tenement building. I had to scrounge for what I got. Nobody gave me anything. I had to take it. And that included? Everything. And no guilts, Doctor. No guilts at all. I see. You see. You see nothing. You think you see. The classic guilt... Columbo fans will recognize this set from the first season episode entitled Death Lends a Hand, starring Peter Falk and Robert Culp. Dr. Mill's office set and his secretary's entryway area were both recycled from that other NBC series, reflecting the resourceful efforts of set designer Joe Alves in his desperate attempt to keep Night Gallery on time and on budget. Jeb is gone. A man I loved wiped out... In the first draft of The Diary, writer Rod Serling called for Jeb's traffic accident to be shown on screen, superimposed upon Holly's anguished face. Serling's suggested visual was too on the nose and, thankfully, was not included in this episode. In the final analysis, Dr. Mills' hand-wringing guilt as he recounts the events leading to Jeb's death is much more dramatically effective. Where is he? Where's Mr. Harlan? He's, he's gone over an hour ago. Uh, in fact, he should be landing in San Francisco about now, Miss Schaefer. San Francisco? Hmm? Business. In fact, some of your investments, I believe. My... Look, I've got to reach him. I've got to talk to him immediately. I, I don't see how. I don't even know what hotel he stopped at. You see, he left so suddenly, there was not even time to make reservations. Look, I've got to talk to him. Don't you understand that? Well, I, I'm sure he'll be telephoning in tomorrow morning. First thing. Yes, of course he will. Well, look, when he calls, you tell him to stay put, not to leave that hotel for anything. You've got to tell him that. Miss Shaver, if, if you could just tell me what this is all about, perhaps... I'll I... tell you what it's about. You tell him. That if he doesn't anchor himself to some real estate tomorrow, he's going to wind up in the obituaries. Tell him that's the way it is in the diary. You've got to tell him that. You've got to tell him. You've just got to tell him that. Somebody's got to tell him. You've got to tell him. Tell him, tell him, tell him. You've got to tell him, tell him, tell him, tell him. You mustn't blame yourself. You were hysterical. I, I couldn't control you. I thought perhaps if he were here... So when he phoned me last night, anxious to know... Our consultation had gone. I, I expressed my concern to him. He was on his way to the San Francisco airport when it happened. He was killed instantly. Everything I touch turns to graveyards. Everything. He phoned me. I, I was the reason he was hurrying back, not you. Because of me, doctor, don't you see? Because of me. I'm 29 years old. And in all those years, I've only loved once. Jeff. In contrast to the story's grim melodramatics, the filming of the diary did have its lighter moments. 
During this scene, as Schaefer reflects upon the emptiness of her life, Patty Duke was breaking up everyone on the set, including herself, by repeatedly fluffing the line, a growing list of corpses, as a list of growing corpses. Catalog of victims and a growing list of corpses. She was later visited on the set by her three-and-a-half-year-old son, Sean Patrick. Quote, it's the first time he's ever visited me on a set to watch me act. Apparently, he's not crazy about my acting. He threw up. Pimlico, Hialeah, Saratoga, Hollywood Park. All I have to do is look in the diary. Rod Serling's real-life model for Holly Schaefer was most likely gossip queen Rona Barrett, whose hatchet jobs on Patty Duke appeared frequently on the air and in print. Barrett especially had speculated for quite some time the identity of the father of Duke's child, adding to the turmoil that the young actress was experiencing. January 4 is a like the character of Holly Schaefer, Rona Barrett relished reporting on Patty Duke's embarrassing public episodes and wild quote-unquote antics. After Patty Duke was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in 1982, Rona Barrett issued a public on-air apology to the actress. Said Barrett, quote, None of us recognize that she was bipolar, but every night on the news I was reporting another antic that she had done in public. It became my prerogative to report what they did in public, what they did in their private homes, unless they wanted me to know what was going on, was none of my business, end of quote. Dig, shrink. Next entry, nothing. The page is blank. Because I won't be alive to write in it. Not after tomorrow. Adding to the long list of performers whose careers were launched by Rod Serling's Night Gallery is Lindsay Wagner, Five years before her legendary role as the bionic woman, as Lindsay Wagner recalls in the following clip. As I recall, she did a little offstage yelling just so I'd know what was going on. And because obviously for the sake of the sound, the sake of the mix, she wasn't doing it during the filming. But as I recall, she was gracious enough to do it so I'd know what I was hearing. Watching my dailies from that show was when I learned that I was great when I was on, but I could see in my face that I, I realized I wasn't acting when the other actor was talking. That I'd do my thing, I'd stop, while, and, and while I was, I was waiting for them, because I'd never been trained for film or anything, I, although that's the same thing in theater, you know, you just never stop being on don't stop and wait to talk. And I realized that my face would kind of go blank when somebody else was talking, and then it was like, here I am, I'm on again, it's time to talk. And, and it, that was the very first lesson I think I ever learned from, and it was absolutely invaluable. It's almost 12 o'clock. In a few minutes, it's gonna be- For this scene, director William Hale developed a chilling, claustrophobic visual, as the director explained in the following clip. Second half of the film, she was in the Looney Bin uh, mental hospital, and uh, to for the window of, of the cell that she was in, uh, I took some gaffer tape and made a little frame within the frame, so that the frame line actually reduced 
and you couldn't see her too well in there, so you're having to sort of peer and, and try to look into the room more. And uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. So, uh, you know, and the thing about television is you never know who's watching or who's digging what you do or whatever. It's just that great question mark, you know, is anybody actually watching this stuff? Well, some years later, I had sort of dropped out of the business and gone back down south to try to raise money for a feature. And I really needed some, you know, a boost to get back in. And Spielberg called around and asked Joe Alves, the art director, you know, who did that show? And Joe told him that I did it. And Stephen says, oh, yeah, because he hadn't seen the opening credits. He'd just seen that effect on the screen. So he actually gave me a job, again, with Petty Duke. But it was just that one effect that did the whole, I mean, whoever did that effect was going to get this job. I don't know why I didn't think of it before. The page is blank, yes? Don't you see? I mean, it's so obvious, it's ridiculous. All I have to do is write something on that blank page. I don't have to die. I can write anything, anything at all. If I write on the page, it means nothing happened to me. Don't you see? I mean, how could I write something if I was already dead? Doctor, in 10 minutes, it's going to be 12 o'clock. For God's sake, please get me up there. I'll be right back. Director William Hale also remembered this early performance of Lindsay Wagner, as we'll hear in this clip. Also, Lindsay Wagner, I think it was her first film. She played a nurse, and, you know, she's one of those people, everybody said, boy, she is really going to take off. She is good, you know, and she did. As you know, we give her a pen every evening. Every evening, doctor? Yes, Miss Schaefer has been a patient at this sanitarium going on five years now. Ultimately, it is the gossip columnist's guilt that imprisons her, not unseen supernatural forces. In the end, Holly Schaefer's trail of destruction has led to self-destruction. A Matter of Semantics is unfortunately another less than distinctive entry in the Night Gallery canon. Actress E.J. Peeker, playing the sympathetic but clueless blood bank nurse, was best known at the time for starring in the movie musical Hello, Dolly! and the TV musical sitcom That's Life, starring Robert Morse. Peeker was also a frequent guest star on the ABC TV comedy anthology Love, American Style. Producer Jack Laird may have been inspired to borrow the Love American style format for Night Gallery, as both series featured multiple stories within their hours, with various vignettes and comedy blackouts sandwiched between the longer segments. To this day, there's a bit of a mystery as to who actually directed A Matter of Semantics. E.J. Peeker distinctly recalls being told that she would be working with the young director all of Hollywood was talking about, Steven Spielberg. Producer Jack Laird, however, is the credited director for this vignette. And the funny thing is, says Peeker, I remember the director looking like Steven Spielberg. They may have taken his name off and put Jack's name on because he was set to direct that show. He was very sensitive and sweet, very helpful and creative, and I thought, this is the man that Universal is so excited about, and he is such a gentle being. I can 
The original script for A Matter of Semantics sheds no light on this night gallery Steven Spielberg mystery. Gene Kearney submitted his final version, production number D33585, on July 29, 1971, and there is no indication of who was initially slated to helm this particular vignette. Famously known for portraying the Joker for three seasons on ABC TV's 1960s comic book camp classic Batman, a matter of semantics marked the first and only time Cesar Romero donned the cape, teeth, and cowl of Bram Stoker's classic Creature of the Night. By the 1970s, Romero was content to appear as a guest star on various network TV productions such as Rod Serling's Night Gallery. Life's been good to me, reflected Romero. It isn't as exhilarating or exciting as it used to be, but after all, it can't go on that way forever. It was a lot of fun while it lasted, I can tell you that. Our Hi, Scott Skelton here. I'll take over from Jim to comment on the rest of this episode. Producer Jack Laird intended this full episode to play third in the season at first. When its timing ran short in the editing room, it had to be delayed which is when a matter of semantics was added to fill up the hour. The segment order within the hour changed a lot, too. It was originally intended for Professor Peabody's last lecture to be the opener, followed by the diary. Big Surprise was supposed to come last in the lineup. Again, it must have been determined at some level that the way the segment sequence played best was in the final order of the premiere broadcast. Certainly the name of Richard Matheson should be well known to fans of fantasy horror literature. His novels are genre canon. I Am Legend, Hell House, The Shrinking Man, What Dreams May Come, Bid Time Return, A Stir of Echoes, and many others. His short fiction is equally distinguished, and many of his written works have been adapted for the big and small screens. His screenplays include Duel, The Incredible Shrinking Man, The Legend of Hell House, Night of the Eagle, known in America as Burn Witch Burn, The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler, House of Usher, The Pit and the Pendulum, and Somewhere in Time. You chicken? Shut up! I won't hurt you! Come here! Matheson was a key player producing scripts for Rod Serling's earlier series, The Twilight Zone. Serling himself adapted two of his short stories, And When the Sky Was Opened and Third from the Sun. And Matheson's 14 other teleplay offerings for Zone included such classics as The Last Flight, Nick of Time, The Invaders, Little Girl Lost, and Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Adapting his own prose for the screen was second nature to Matheson, and for Night Gallery, his own adaptation of his short story Big Surprise is the most successful of the two scripts of his produced for the series. It has been a fan favorite of the series for decades. Richard Matheson's clever homage to the spooky campfire stories of childhood has given splendid life thanks to the visual stamp of director Jean-Ose Fock and the services of John Carradine. Always a joy to watch, Carradine plays a wheezy old crank with infectious glee, and his delivery is priceless. Mr. Hawkins, are you? I'm not afraid of anything. That's a lad. What's your name? Chris. Well, Chris, how would you like a big surprise? I love this. Carradine stays in character as his dentures slip, and you can see the old pro just takes it in stride and doesn't miss a beat. The actor's presence on the set inspired affection as well as admiration, recalls Vincent Van Patten, who played the intrepid Chris. 
My father told me before I did the show, he said, uh, you're going to be working with one of the greatest actors of all time. And that, of course, is John Carradine. You know, he was fantastic in The Grapes of Wrath. Just listen to his voice. So I had a lot of respect for him working with Carradine. And uh, he did a great job. And, you know, my father built him up as this yeah. wonderful actor, and he was. He was very good, but it wasn't intim intimidating. Right. I was a child actor from the age of nine. And uh, when you're a kid actor, I don't think anybody intimidates you. Recalls Mark Vahanian, who played one of the other boys. I was very excited to be working with John Carradine. I'd been a great fan of his for many years. He was already fairly well along, and it was very hot out there. I remember even as a young fellow being just a little concerned for him standing in the heat. Always a professional, Carradine's enthusiasm never flagged. Director Jonas Fark was equally happy to work with the old cinema veteran. We were really imaginative, because I remember on the one with John Carradine, which is supposed to take in the country. I found this place on the back lot, and I used negative space, which means I put pieces of wood or whatever to block out whatever I just want to see. And then we ended up with this thing that looked as if you were in the middle of the Middle West. But you see, that showed it was not only that they had terrific people, they had Spielberg, they had Batman, I mean, they had great cameramen, terrific crew, Joe Alves was fantastic, costumes, everything was first class. But it, it showed that everything is not just money and me, because we certainly didn't have the money and the schedule we should have had. And I think, in a way, it, it forces you to be more imaginative when you don't have it all on a platter. And everybody wanted to do good work. And believe me, when you looked at the scripts you got on other shows, God, I mean, you know, you worked on it, you worked on it. And then you suddenly got this night gallery, and it was like reading poetry. The term negative space means composing the frame so that something in the foreground blocks the view of an unwanted element in the background, such as a telephone pole. D.P. Lionel Linden would have been a past master at such visual trickery, and his stunning color photography well captures the dry, bleached landscape. John Carradine by this time had been working in the film industry for more than 40 years. He was one of director John Ford's repertory players, showing up in 11 of his films. He was the sadistic prison guard in The Prisoner of Shark Island, the shady gambler in Stagecoach, and most memorably, the doomed preacher Casey in The Grapes of Wrath. He was in a wealth of horror and mystery films in those days too, with memorable turns in The Invisible Man, The Bride of Frankenstein, The Hound of the Baskervilles, Captive Wild Woman, The Mummy's Ghost, and Bluebeard, and playing the vampire king himself in House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. Fans of the Twilight Zone will recall him as Brother Jerome in the second season highlight, The Howling Man, and he would return 26 years later for a role in the first Zone reboot of the 1980s, starring with his son Robert in the terrifying Still Life segment, filmed two years before his death. In 1973, he would appear also in Dan Curtis's TV movie The Night Strangler, the sequel to the made-for-TV phenomenon The Night Stalker. He has a hysterical scene trading barbs with actors Darren McGavin, Scott Brady, and Wally Cox while playing reporter Carl Kolschak's elderly cantankerous publisher, Llewellyn Crossbinder. Well, how about you? Without today's specialized camera equipment, a few aspects of Jeannot's visual scheme were an effort to recreate here. So Carradine was not the only one who had to get boxed in in big surprise. For the digging scenes, a cameraman was positioned in the hole under a sheet of plexiglass, shooting up with the shoveling boys. I remember we did the show in, a, I think, two days or something, on the back lot at Universal, 
it was a lot of fun, of course. And looking back and watching the show, I'm saying it was a like, wow. You know, when they when they panned upward, you could see you could see for miles, hills and things. And today you couldn't do that same shot. I'm sure it's all universal uh, tours right now, and it's <laughs> not just tours. It's universal uh, whatever, city walk and all that. I thought that was interesting. That today, of course, that's all gone. But we shot it right back there, and um, it was a it was a lot of fun. The music score for this segment was not original, but instead compiled from two sources within the show's library of music cues already written for other episodes. The first half is almost entirely from John Lewis's score for Since Aunt Ada Came to Stay, while the second half is drawn from Oliver Nelson's scores for The Hand of Borges Weems and Miss Lovecraft Sent Me from the first episode of the second season. These cues underscore the tension and the oddball atmosphere author Richard Matheson and the director are trying to establish here in the midst of this summery rural setting. Matheson expresses pleasure at the outcome with this comment, quote, I'm glad to say that the big surprise holds up pretty well. In fact, I hadn't remembered that Jono Swart added a circular ending, which was a nice touch, unquote. It is clear that Matheson was referring to the syndication version of the series, for which big surprise has been expanded with superfluous footage from Alfred Hitchcock's classic film The Birds, no less, and inexplicably repeats the opening footage after the segment's finish as if to establish that this story was somehow an endlessly repeating nightmare, which makes no goddamn sense at all. That didn't seem to bother Universal Vice President Harry Tattleman, who was in charge of the entirety of the syndication abortion that transformed Night Gallery from an intelligent, diverting slice of fantasy television into an inchoate, incomprehensible muddle. Matheson, not privy to the post-cancellation fiasco, thought this must be the original piece, a misconception reared by many old fans of the show when viewing the syndicated version. Can we have some, Chris? No. It's mine. We read about writing for Night Gallery in The Twilight Zone and Other Zones, The Dark Worlds of Richard Matheson. The author had a few choice comments about his overall experience on Night Gallery. Quote, I think I did several other scripts, but they didn't get made. They were adaptations of other writers' stories. They did that. All of their stuff was adaptations except for the little five-minute segments, which I guess were comedies. I had nothing to do with those. There were certain producers who just really didn't like what I did. I don't think Jack Laird cared for what I did." Unquote. Those who experienced the original broadcast and became fans of the series are still quite fond of it and have great memories of watching it for the first time. Vincent Van Patten was certainly one of them. I remember when I was a kid, I mean, I was 13 years old when I did that part. And when I heard, when I used to watch Night Gallery and hear that creepy music, I mean, it would scare the living daylights out of me. <laughs> Unlike some of the music scores that you hear today from right. TV shows, they can't really duplicate what he had. They can't do, these other horror, uh, creepy shows that they try to do never catch on. I mean, they haven't had, since Night Gallery, and they haven't really had any successful ones. <laughs> H.P. Lovecraft's legacy, both his own works and those he inspired, would figure strongly in Night Gallery's second season. The first of these, Professor Peabody's last lecture, is a brief comedy sketch that acts as a primer for Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, 
while the more dramatic heavy hitters would come later in the season, Pickman's Model and Cool Air, both among the best segments Night Gallery ever offered, by general consensus. This painting is another of Tom Wright's favorites on the show, and he admits he gave in to his more painterly instincts while creating it. Quote, I used acrylics but handled it a lot differently than usual. This has color transitions and strengths that really tell the story, I think. The sky's colors and textures needed to create emotion, swirling and dark against the benign position of the lecturer. I wanted the audience to wonder what's going on. Maybe he's lecturing to the universe. Maybe the world is coming to an end. Unquote. The director of this segment, Gerald Friedman, was already busy with other projects at Universal at the time, but he took this job, as he did all of his Night Gallery episodes, as a favorite of producer Jack Laird. This was his first meeting with actor, director, producer, and comedian Carl Reiner, and he was very impressed. Quote, Getting a guy like Carl Reiner for Night Gallery was a coup. He was a really big star at the time. Unquote. In the sense, it's childish to believe that uh, Clark Kent, in the guise of Superman, can leap over tall buildings in a single bound. <laughs> yes, Mr. Block. Reiner's fame at the time centered around his comedy partnership with Mel Brooks and for creating and producing The Dick Van Dyke Show, the wildly popular CBS situation comedy. Reiner was instrumental behind the scenes, crafting smart, funny scripts about television writer Rob Petrie as he strives to balance show business and family life. Adding to the fun, Reiner often appeared in cameos as Rob's demanding egomaniac of a boss, TV host Alan Brady, modeled on your show show's benign despot, Sid Caesar. One of the running jokes on the show was the ever-vain Brady's sensitivity about his baldness. In real life, however, Reiner's approach was very casual when it came to being seen without his toupee, wearing one only when the mood suited him. Quote, to me, wearing a hairpiece in the daytime is bad taste. Hair is for after six at night. When I dress up, I also wear my hairpiece. All formal occasions, of course, require hair. Unquote. At the time of production, Carl Reiner's son, Rob, was beginning to capture the viewing public's attention in his role as Mike Stivick on the groundbreaking CBS sitcom All in the Family. Noting his son's growing popularity, Carl Reiner decided it was time to recapture a bit of the spotlight before he was eclipsed, as he related in an interview. Quote, a little girl came up to me the other day and said, Is the kid on All in the Family your son? I said, Yes, he was. She stared at me and then she said, What's your name? Unquote. Shocked by this lack of recognition, the veteran funny man then decided, Maybe I better get out and do some acting myself. What I'll do, I'll do a guest shot on Night Gallery. And I'll wear my hair. Unquote. In the end, however, Professor Peabody took the lectern sans rug. Jack Laird wrote the script, and as an inside joke to fans of Lovecraft, filled the classroom with pupils whose names would be recognizable as being among Lovecraft's inner circle. Writer Robert Block is played by Richard Annis, who would later become the head of Universal Studios tour operations. Writer August Derleth was played by Jack Laird's and Jerry Friedman's auto detailer, Larry Watson. Writer Hazel Held was played by Louise Lawson, whose lines were actually trimmed from the final cut in an effort to bring the episode in at the requisite 51 minutes. Lawson is the blonde woman seated in front of the giddy, stuttering master himself, writer Howard Phillips Lovecraft, played hilariously by actor Johnny Collins III. Yes. Now, as I was saying before, Mr. Derleth, with commendable solicitude, chose to interrupt. We have great 
Huster, who I, I might uh, point out as a half-brother to Cthulhu, the next name on our prestigious list. Recalls Friedman, quote, Professor Peabody was only a one-day shoot, but I shot a ton of film. I had to get a lot of coverage because it was a very static show. It was basically just a question of letting Carl wail. It was a 13-page script that we had to shoot in a day, and we had to walk into an already existing set, which was really not right for this particular show. It was a classroom set, and it should have been long and narrow. Instead, it was wide. But we were cranking these shows out like crazy on my gallery. It was a throwaway segment, in a sense. At the end of the shoot, Carl gave me a box of Cuban cigars. <laughs> you know, we were, and we stayed friends. I mean, and I was also in acting class with his son, Rob, at the time, uh, with Jeff Corey. And uh, so I knew him. I knew his wife. I knew Carl. And, and then later on, I had my... I, I, I was I had I was under contract at Fox and I had an office over there, and my office was across the hallway from Mel Brooks. And Carl was always over there. We hung out together. A lot of actors really wanted to do this show because it was different. They were never going to. It wasn't a series. They weren't playing a series character or a friend of a series character. They were never going to do anything like this again in television. H.P. Lovecraft never achieved any real success in his lifetime. And only recently has he seen a reappraisal of his works by scholars and other writers, to the point where he is now finally viewed as one of the major fixtures of early 20th century American literature. Not that you could tell here in Laird's script, in which he's portrayed as a hapless, enthusiastic nerd to Reiner's dismissive academic. Actor Johnny Collins really delivers the funny here. You can see Louise Lawson as Hazel Held to his right. She had a very limited career outside of some appearances on TV westerns like Laredo and the Wild Wild West, and an uncredited role as Portia Haynes in the classic horror film Rosemary's Baby, her career just came and went. A manuscript of that most infamous of all Kabbalistic treatises, the Necronomicon by Abdul Al-Hazrid, translated from the Arabic into Greek by Theodorus... Friedman continues about the actor, or rather amateur actor, who played August Derleth, one of the students. Germany circa 14... Larry Watson was the greatest car painter in America. He was better than some of these really famous names. He painted a car of mine that I will never forget. It was famous all over Hollywood, my car. It had 13 hand, co hand rope coats of lacquer in it. If you gave Larry a, a line in the show, he would be your car for you. And, but he was also a great guy. He was a friend. And, and, uh, you know, Jack drove a 300 SL Goldwing Mercedes, Laird, and Larry did like six different paint jobs on it is as corruptively harmful as the farmer's almanac. <laughs> I, I have uh, selected a few representative passages to read aloud to you. The text itself, more than any observations I might offer, should prove to you just how... This hour, in its entirety, was a perfect example of what the series creator, Rod Serling, saw as its most egregious flaw, its inconsistency of tone. It starts off with Serling's drama of predestination, The Diary, followed immediately by Gene Kearney's idiotic vignette, A Matter of Semantics. Next comes Serling associate Richard Matheson's witty addition to campfire lore, Big Surprise, which is then followed by Jack Laird's silly groaner, Professor Peabody's last lecture. This sequence of tales fluctuates from serious to comic and back again in a manner that disastrously jerked the viewing audience back and forth, in and out of the crucial mood needed for its complete success. Commented Serling. The question is how come a night gallery, the format seems to take a, a form of 
uh, one or two serious pieces and then kind of a Bush Belt blackout comedy sketch being thrown in, uh, obviously way off from another county. Uh, since I don't have creative control on the show, this was dictated by the network and by the studio, Universal Producers. I never liked those short ones. I, I didn't think they came out. I don't think they established themselves. Comedy is the most viciously difficult thing to get across anyway. And uh, I thought it, it I thought it distorted the thread of what we were trying to do on gallery. I don't think you can show Edgar Allan Poe and then come back with Flip Wilson for 34 seconds. I just don't think they fit. I do. I thought they showed him off, and they're not going to show anymore. If the show is renewed, that is, which is very iffy at the moment. No one seems to know. And I, as usual, I'll be the last one to hear. Uh, I just found out that Coolidge didn't make it on the third term. I, you know, they take a while. Although this has remained a fan favorite for some viewers over the years, there's no denying that segments like Professor Peabody's last lecture caused a lot of disappointment for mainstream television viewers. And there were critics who expected a much more serious approach to the genre, more in line with the tone of the pilot. And they soon forgot the better segments the series produced and turned their backs on the show. From the beginning of known time to the end of time known, man rules where once they ruled. Soon they shall rule again where man rules now. They shall return, and on this returning shall great Cthulhu be freed from The storm outside causes the professor to have to amp up his volume to be heard, and Carl practically screams and eats his tie while delivering his reading of the Necronomicon. In my opinion, such as it is, a drier tone from the lead actor would have better served this extended in-joke. Reiner's practically rabid here. The punchline for this comic segment was supposed to be delivered by way of Peabody's transformation into a tentacled Lovecraftian horror, but the makeup department's creation of what looks like a bathtub toy headdress falls flat. Recalls makeup artist Leonard Engelman, quote, that was a very early effort, a big sort of octopus-looking thing with methyl cellulose and all sorts of things dripping off of it, unquote. Unfortunately, not quite what one visualizes when imagining the shambling monstrosities described in Lovecraft's oeuvre. Thanks for listening to this commentary. At the time of this taping, the second edition of my book, Rod Serling's Night Gallery, an after-hours tour, co-authored with Jim Benson, is set for release sometime in spring of 2022. Massively expanded and researched, fully illustrated with color and black and white photos, and more than twice its original length, it's for all practical purposes an entirely new book. For fans of the series, of Rod Serling, and of television history, we feel it's a must-read. We hope you take a look at it.